Chapter Six, Part Two of Autobiography. This is a LibriVox recording. All LibriVox recordings are in the public domain. For more information or to volunteer, please visit LibriVox.org. Recording by Vicki Rands. Autobiography by John Stuart Mill. Commencement of the most valuable friendship of my life. My father's death, writings, and other proceedings up to 1840. His place is an eminent one in the literary and even in political history of his country, and it is far from honorable to the generation which has benefited by his worth that he is so seldom mentioned and compared with men far his inferiors so little remembered. This is probably to be ascribed mainly to two causes. In the first place, the thought of him merges too much in the deservedly superior fame of Bentham. Yet he was anything but Bentham's mere follower or disciple, precisely because he was himself one of the most original thinkers of his time. He was one of the earliest to appreciate and adopt the most important mass of original thought which had been produced by the generation preceding him. His mind and Bentham's were essentially of different construction. He had not all Bentham's high qualities, but neither had Bentham all his. It would, indeed, be ridiculous to claim for him the praise of having accomplished for mankind such splendid services as Bentham's. He did not revolutionize, or rather create, one of the great departments of human thought. But leaving out of the reckoning all that portion of his labors in which he benefited by what Bentham had done, and counting only what he achieved in a province in which Bentham had done nothing, that of analytic psychology. He will be known to posterity as one of the greatest names in that most important branch of speculation, on which all the moral and political sciences ultimately rest, and will mark one of the essential stages in its progress. The other reason which has made his fame less than he deserved, is that notwithstanding the great number of his opinions, which, partly through his own efforts, have now been generally adopted, on the whole a marked opposition between his spirit and that of the present time. As Brutus was called the last of the Romans, so was he the last of the eighteenth century. He continued its tone of thought and sentiment into the nineteenth, though not unmodified nor unimproved, partaking neither in the good nor in the bad influences of the reaction against the eighteenth century, which was the great characteristic of the first half of the nineteenth. The eighteenth century was a great age, an age of strong and brave men, and he was a fit companion for its strongest and bravest. By his writings and his personal influence, he was a great center of light to his generation. During his later years, he was quite as much the head and leader of the intellectual radicals in England, as Voltaire was of the philosophies of France. It is only one of his minor merits that he was the originator of all sound statementship in regard to the subject of his largest work, India. He wrote on no subject which he did not enrich with valuable thought, and accepting the elements of political economy, a very useful book when first written, but which has now for some time finished its work, it will be long before any of his books will be wholly superseded, or will cease to be instructive reading to students 
of their subjects, in the power of influencing, by mere force of mind and character, the convictions and purposes of others, and in the strenuous exertion of that power to promote freedom and progress, he left, as far as my knowledge extends, no equal among men, and but one among women. Though acutely sensible of my own inferiority in the qualities by which he acquired his personal ascendancy, I had now to try what it might be possible for me to accomplish without him, and the review was the instrument on which I built my chief hopes of establishing a useful influence over the liberal and democratic section of the public mind. Deprived of my father's aid, I was also exempted from the restraints and reticences by which that aid had been purchased. I did not feel that there was any other radical writer or politician to whom I was bound to defer, further than consisted with my own opinions, and having the complete confidence of Molesworth, I resolved henceforth to give full scope to my own opinions and modes of thought, and to open the review widely to all writers who were in sympathy with progress as I understood it even though I should lose by it the support of my former associates. Carlyle consequently became from this time a frequent writer in the review. Sterling, soon after, an occasional one, and though each individual article continued to be the expression of the private sentiments of its writer, the general tone conformed in some tolerable degree to my opinions. For the conduct of the review, under and in conjunction with me, associated with myself a young Scotchman of the name of Robertson, who had some ability and information, much industry, and an active scheming head full of devices for making the review more saleable, and on whose capacities in that direction I founded a good deal of hope, insomuch that when Molesworth, in the beginning of 1837, became tired of carrying on the review at a loss and desirous of getting rid of it, he had done his part honorably, and at no small pecuniary cost. I, very imprudently, for my own pecuniary interest, and very much from reliance on Robertson's devices, determined to continue it at my own risk, until his plan should have had a fair trial. The devices were good, and I never had any reason to change my opinion of them. But I do not believe that any devices would have made a radical and democratic review defray its expenses, including a paid editor or sub-editor, and a liberal payment to writers. I myself and several frequent contributors gave our labor gratuitously, as we had done for Molesworth, but the paid contributors continued to be remunerated on the usual scale of the Edinburgh and Quarterly Reviews and this could not be done from the proceeds of the sale. In the same year, 1837, in the midst of these occupations, I resumed the logic. I had not touched my pen on the subject for five years, having been stopped and brought to a halt on the threshold of induction. I had gradually discovered that what was mainly wanting to overcome the difficulties of that branch of the subject was a comprehensive and at the same time accurate view of the whole circle of physical science, which I feared would take me a long course of study to acquire, since I knew not of any book or other guide 
that would spread out before me the generalities and processes of the sciences and i apprehended that i should have no choice but to extract them for myself as best i could from the details happily for me dr Weevil, early in this year published his history of the inductive sciences i read it with eagerness and found in it a considerable approximation to what i wanted much if not most of the philosophy of the work appeared open to objection but the materials were there for my own thoughts to work upon and the author had given to those materials that first degree of elaboration which so greatly facilitates and abridges the subsequent labor i had now obtained what i had been waiting for under the impulse given me by the thoughts excited by dr Weevil, i read again sir j herschel's discourse on the study of natural philosophy and i was able to measure the progress my mind had made by the great help i now found in this work though i had read and even reviewed it several years before with little profit i now set myself vigorously to work out the subject in thought and in writing the time i bestowed on this had to be stolen from occupations more urgent i had just two months to spare at this period in the intervals of writing for the review in these two months i completed the first draft of about a third the most difficult third of the book what i had before written i estimate at another third so that one third remained what i wrote at this time consisted of the remainder of the doctrine of reasoning the theory of trains of reasoning and demonstrative science and the greater part of the book on induction when this was done i had as it seemed to me untied all the really hard knots and the completion of the book had become only a question of time having got thus far i had to leave off in order to write two articles for the next number of the review when these were written i returned to the subject and now for the first time fell in with comte's cours de philosophie positive or rather with the two volumes of it which were all that had at the time been published my theory of induction was substantially completed before i knew of comte's book and it is perhaps well that i came to it by a different road from his since the consequence has been that my treaty contains what his certainly does not a reduction of the inductive process to strict rules and to a scientific test such as the syllogism is for ratiocination comte is always precise and profound on the method of investigation but he does not even attempt any exact definition of the conditions of proof and his writings show that he never attained a just conception of them this however was specifically the problem which in treating of induction I had proposed to myself nevertheless i gained much from comte with which to enrich my chapters in the subsequent rewriting and his book was of essential service to me in some of the parts which still remained to be thought out as his subsequent volumes successively made their appearance i read them with avidity but when he reached the subject of social science with varying feelings the fourth volume disappointed me 
it contained those of his opinions on social subjects with which i most disagree but the fifth containing the connected view of history rekindled all my enthusiasm which the sixth or concluding volume did not materially abate in a merely logical point of view the only leading conception for which i am indebted to him is that of the inverse deductive method as the one chiefly applicable to the complicated subjects of history and statistics a process differing from the more common form of the deductive method in this that instead of arriving at its conclusions by general reasoning and verifying them by specific experience as is the natural order in the deductive branches of physical science it obtains its generalizations by a collation of specific experience and verifies them by ascertaining whether they are such as would follow from known general principles this was an idea entirely new to me when i found it in comte and but for him i might not soon if ever have arrived at it i had been long an ardent admirer of comte's writings before i had any communication with himself nor did i ever to the last see him in the body but for some years we were frequent correspondents until our correspondence became controversial and our zeal cooled i was the first to slacken correspondence he was the first to drop it i found and he probably found likewise that i could do no good to his mind and that all the good he could do to mine he did by his books this would never have led to discontinuance of intercourse if the differences between us had been on matters of simple doctrine but they were chiefly on those points of opinion which blended in both of us with our strongest feelings and determined the entire direction of our aspirations i had fully agreed with him when he maintained that the mass of mankind including even their rulers in all the practical departments of life must from the necessity of the case accept most of their opinions on political and social matters as they do on physical from the authority of those who have bestowed more study on those subjects than they generally have it in their power to do this lesson had been strongly impressed on me by the early work of comte to which i have adverted and there was nothing in his great treaty which i admired more than his remarkable exposition of the benefits which the nations of modern europe have historically derived from the separation during the middle ages of temporal and spiritual power and the distinct organization of the latter i agreed with him that the moral and intellectual ascendancy once exercised by priests must in time pass into the hands of philosophers and will naturally do so when they become sufficiently unanimous and in other respects worthy to possess it when he exaggerated this line of thought into a practical system in which philosophers were to be organized into a kind of corporate hierarchy invested with almost the same spiritual supremacy though without any secular power once possessed by the catholic church when i found him relying on the spiritual authority as the only security for good government the sole bulwark against practical oppression 
and expecting that by it a system of despotism in the state and despotism in the family would be rendered innocuous and beneficial it is not surprising that while as logicians we were nearly at one as sociologists we could travel together no further m comte lived to carry out these doctrines to their extremest consequences by planning in his last work the system de politique positive completest system of spiritual and temporal despotism which ever yet emanated from a human brain unless possibly that of ignatius loyola a system by which the yoke of general opinion wielded by an organized body of spiritual teachers and rulers would be made supreme over every action and as far as is in human possibility every thought of every member of the community as well in the things which regard only himself as in those which concern the interests of others it is but just to say that this work is a considerable improvement in many points of feeling over comte's previous writings on the same subjects but as an accession to social philosophy the only value it seems to me to possess consists in putting an end to the notion that no effectual moral authority can be maintained over society without the aid of religious belief for comte's work recognizes no religion except that of humanity yet it leaves an irresistible conviction that any moral belief concurred in by the community generally may be brought to bear upon the whole conduct and lives of its individual members with an energy and potency truly alarming to think of the book stands a monumental warning to thinkers on society and politics of what happens when once men lose sight in their speculations of the value of liberty and of individuality to return to myself the review engrossed for some time longer nearly all the time i could devote to authorship or to thinking with authorship in view the articles from the london and westminster review which are reprinted in the dissertations are scarcely a fourth part of those i wrote in the conduct of the review i had two principal objects one was to free philosophic radicalism from the reproach of sectarian benthamism i desired while retaining the precision of expression the definiteness of meaning the contempt of declamatory phrases and vague generalities which were so honorably characteristic both of bentham and of my father to give a wider basis and a more free and genial character to radical speculations to show that there was a radical philosophy better and more complete than bentham's while recognizing and incorporating all of bentham's which is permanently valuable in this first object i to a certain extent succeeded the other thing i attempted was to stir up the educated radicals in and out of parliament to exertion and induce them to make themselves what i thought by using the proper means they might become a powerful party capable of taking the government of the country or at least of dictating the terms on which they should share it with the whigs this attempt was from the first chimerical partly 
because the time was unpropitious, the reform fervor being in its period of ebb, and the Tory influences powerfully rallying, but still more because, as Austin so truly said, the country did not contain the men among the radicals in Parliament. There were several qualified to be useful members of an enlightened radical party, but none capable of forming and leading such a party. The exhortations I addressed to them found no response. One occasion did present itself when there seemed to be room for a bold and successful stroke for radicalism. Lord Durham had left the ministry by reason, as was thought, of their not being sufficiently liberal. He afterwards accepted from them the task of ascertaining and removing the causes of the Canadian rebellion. He had shown a disposition to surround himself at the outset with radical advisers. One of his earliest measures, a good measure both in intention and in effect, having been disapproved and reversed by the government at home, he had resigned his post and placed himself openly in a position of quarrel with the ministers. Here was a possible chief for a radical party, in the person of a man of importance, who was hated by the Tories, and had just been injured by the Whigs. Any one who had the most elementary notions of party tactics must have attempted to make something of such an opportunity. Lord Durham was bitterly attacked from all sides, inveighed against by enemies given up by timid friends, while those who would willingly have defended him did not know what to say. He appeared to be returning a defeated and discredited man. I had followed the Canadian events from the beginning. I had been one of the prompters of his prompters. His policy was almost exactly what mine would have been, and I was in a position to defend it. I wrote and published a manifesto in the review, in which I took the very highest ground in his behalf, claiming for him not mere acquittal, but praise and honor. Instantly a number of other writers took up the tone. I believe that there was a portion of truth in what Lord Durham, soon after, with polite exaggeration, said to me, that to this article might be ascribed the almost triumphal reception which he met with on his arrival in England. I believe it to have been the word and season which at a critical moment does much to decide the result. The touch which determines whether a stone set in motion at the top of an eminence shall roll down on one side or on the other. All hopes connected with Lord Durham as a politician soon vanished, but with regard to Canadian and generally to colonial policy, the cause was gained. Lord Durham's report, written by Charles Buller, partly under the inspiration of Wakefield, began a new error. Its recommendations extending to the complete internal self-government were in full operation in Canada within two or three years, and have been since extended to nearly all the other colonies of European race which have any claim to the character of important communities. And I may say that in successfully upholding the reputation of Lord Durham and his advisers, at the most important moment, I contributed materially to this result. One other case occurred during my conduct of the review, which similarly illustrated the effect of taking a prompt initiative. 
I believe that the early success and reputation of Carlyle's French Revolution were considerably accelerated by what I wrote about it in the review. Immediately on its publication and before the commonplace critics, all whose rules and modes of judgment it set at defiance, had time to preoccupy the public with their disapproval of it, I wrote and published a review of the book, hailing it as one of those productions of genius which are above all rules and are a law to themselves. Neither in this case nor in that of Lord Durham do I ascribe the impression, which I think was produced by what I wrote, to any particular merit of execution. Indeed, in at least one of the cases, the article on Carlyle, I do not think the execution was good, and in both instances I am persuaded that anybody in a position to be read, who had expressed the same opinion at the same precise time, and had made any tolerable statement of the just grounds for it, would have produced the same effect. But after the complete failure of my hopes of putting a new life into radical politics by means of the review, I am glad to look back on these two instances of success in an honest attempt to do immediate service to things and persons that deserved it. After the last hope of the formation of a radical party had disappeared, it was time for me to stop the heavy expenditure of time and money which the review cost me. It had to some extent answered my personal purpose as a vehicle for my opinions. It had enabled me to express in print much of my altered mode of thought, and to separate myself in a marked manner from the narrower benthamism of my early writings. This was done by the general tone of all I wrote, including various purely literary articles, but especially by the two papers reprinted in the dissertations which attempted a philosophical estimate of Bentham and of Coleridge. In the first of these, while doing full justice to the merits of Bentham, I pointed out what I thought the errors and deficiencies of his philosophy. The substance of this criticism I still think perfectly just, but I have sometimes doubted whether it was right to publish it at that time. I have often felt that Bentham's philosophy, as an instrument of progress, has been to some extent discredited before it had done its work, and that to lend a hand towards lowering its reputation was doing more harm than service to improvement. Now, however, when a counter-reaction appears to be setting in towards what is good in Benthamism, I can look with more satisfaction on this criticism of its defects, especially as I have myself balanced it by vindications of the fundamental principles of Bentham's philosophy, which are reprinted along with it in the same collection. In the essay on Coleridge, I attempted to characterize the European reaction against the negative philosophy of the eighteenth century, and here, if the effect only of this one paper were to be considered, I might be thought to have erred by giving undue prominence to the favorable side, as I had done in the case of Bentham, to the unfavorable. In both cases the impetus with which I had detached myself from what was untenable in the doctrines of Bentham and of the eighteenth century may have carried me, though in appearance rather than in reality, 
too far on the contrary side but as far as relates to the article on coleridge my defence is that i was writing for radicals and liberals and it was my business to dwell most on that in writers of a different school from the knowledge of which they might derive most improvement the number of the review which contained the paper on coleridge was the last which was published during my proprietorship in the spring of eighteen forty i made over the review to mr hickson who had been a frequent and very useful unpaid contributor under my management only stipulating that the change should be marked by a resumption of the old name that of westminster review under that name mr hickson conducted it for ten years on the plan of dividing among contributors only the net proceeds of the review giving his own labor as writer and editor gratuitously under the difficulty in obtaining writers which arose from this low scale of payment it is highly creditable to him that he was able to maintain in some tolerable degree the character of the review as an organ of radicalism and progress i did not cease altogether to write for the review but continued to send it occasional contributions not however exclusively for the greater circulation of the edinburgh review induced me from this time to offer articles to it also when i had anything to say for which it appeared to be a suitable vehicle and the concluding volumes of democracy in america having just then come out i inaugurated myself as a contributor to the edinburgh by the article on that work which has the second volume of the dissertations end of chapter six part two recording by vicky rands